Hey guys, how are you doing? Good. Good to see you too. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much that we get to come together and we just get to praise and worship as uh, family, Lord, that we get to celebrate that our King has been victorious over sin and death, that he has overcome all of the enemies and obstacles that we could not overcome on our own, and that we get to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ to praise our Father. And so I pray, Lord, as we're looking forward to Good Friday and to Easter, as difficult things come, as there's trials and tribulations and frustrations and circumstances that happen, Lord, that we would always view things, even the tiniest things, through the lens of the cross. That if you could even use the cross for our good, you can also use the things that we're going through right now for good as well. As we know, you're working all things towards the counsel of your will, that you're working all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to your purpose. We pray, Lord, that we would have eyes open to see things that way. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. As you're turning there, let me ask you a question. What is green and smells like red paint? Green paint. That is a solid joke, right? Like it is, it is just, there's no wasted words. It gets right to, it is, I've been laughing at that for weeks. I said it to my wife in the kitchen. She went, <laughs> and I'm like, that is a good joke. Well, my daughter comes in. My daughter's seven years old. My daughter is very smart. And I say to her, hey, hey, Briar. I go, what is green and smells like red paint? And she goes, well, what does green smell like? I go, well, no, it's not, it's not, about, it's not about the color. It's, paint has a smell. What is green? It smells like red paint. And she goes, what kind of paint? And I go, well, no, it, that, that's irrelevant. And so then by the time you actually get to the punchline, it's like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And she's like, what are we having for dinner? And I'm like, I'm about, you're about to have nothing for dinner. You know, just as much as you laughed is what you're going to eat. Like, sometimes we go into a situation and we think, oh, this is going to be just Perfect. This is a clean, just, there's no wasted words. It's going to make perfect sense. And the person that receives that message goes, well, hold on, I don't get that. You go, how do you not get that? Like, it felt like it was pretty clear. Paul started this church in Corinth. Corinth was a rough city. It was a city full of sailors. I mean, it was the in-between port town. And so when sailors come and dock, they come to party and then they leave and they leave ruin and wreckage behind. I have an uncle whose entire job is to be a lawyer on one of our Navy ships. Did you know that every Navy ship requires a full-time lawyer? Because our boys dock, they do bad things and they need to have a lawyer on hand, ready to say, guy, I'm so sorry. I will, these boys are in trouble. Like that's, that's Jeff's entire job. Josh's entire job. I'm getting my, his, his name all mixed up. Sometimes you go into something, you say, this is totally gonna make sense. And so at this port city, you have this church that gets founded. And Paul is really excited for them and about them and what God is doing through them. He writes them a letter. He writes them a second letter. That second letter we call 1 Corinthians. It's the first letter that we have that, it, that Paul has written to the Corinthians where he's correcting them. And he's saying, hey, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on at this church. Love you guys. 
Love what it is God is doing in your community through you. A um, few things, you cannot be celebrating sin the way that you are. There's a man who's doing something that even the pagans around you are like, whoa, hey, that's a little too far. Paul says you need to push that guy out of the community of grace and, and the community of unconditional love so that he will finally want to come back and say, oh my gosh, I want that community again. I'm so sorry. I'm going to repent from my ways. That's an important tool for you to use. And also your services are just chaotic and crazy. We're going to dial that back quite a bit. And we're going to really focus on some other areas of the, the spiritual world that's super important. And we're going to focus on those things. And Paul is like that. That message cannot be misinterpreted. That is solid. Sends that. Didn't go well. And so then Paul has to visit. And man, that didn't really go the best. And so now Paul, we have, we have this letter right here, which is 2 Corinthians, where Paul is really addressing them again. And there's, Paul really cares for their heart. Hey, you guys, man, that didn't go the way I wanted it to, partly because there's people in the community who are like, man, Paul... Didn't Paul's nasally voice just frustrate you? A man of God wouldn't sound that way. And a man of God, wouldn't you be much stronger and taller? He'd look a lot like me, obviously. Like, wouldn't a man of God look like that? And so Paul has to address a lot of those things in this letter. And so we're picking up in the middle of, of this conversation where Paul is saying, hey, I was super just anxious about how you received that last thing I said. And I'm so excited that you received it with grace and that you saw my heart and that you would know how deeply I care for you. And that's why I wrote to you. And so as we jump in to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, the first word you see is since. It's, it's almost like therefore, since we have these promises. Well, what promises? He's talking about the stuff that happened in chapter six. And so just briefly, I want to retouch on something that we talked about last week. So the Corinthians have this culture they need to be separated from. They have this culture of, hey, man, when you are feeling like you just should go get drunk, that's your body telling you, man, we need to go get drunk. And we shouldn't deny that. So let's go get drunk together. And Paul is saying, no, that's not how you should behave. Your culture has, a, has habits and hobbies and ways of viewing how you do life that need to be separate entirely from the Christian walk and the Christian life. Just because your culture says that this is great doesn't mean that it's good. Just because your culture says this is legal doesn't mean that you should do it. And so Paul is bringing that up in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. Paul just starts rapid fiery, fire just listing scripture. He says, I, this is quoting the Bible, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So here, Paul quotes Exodus 29, Ezekiel 37, Leviticus 26, Isaiah 52, all parts of those verses, all verbatim. What does that tell you? And Paul, what does that tell you about him? He didn't have what I have. He doesn't get to go on his phone and say, oh, there's a verse. What was that verse? And, and just type in like three words that kind of are in the verse that almost make sense. And then my Google will say, oh, this is what you mean. I'm like, that is exactly what I meant. Paul didn't have access to that. Paul was a man who really had a deep working knowledge of scripture that he was able to just 
while walking, that's when this letter gets written, he's traveling and then at night has time to either write it down or dictate it to someone else who writes it down. He's able to just, all of these verses, be able to say, this is why we do the things that we do. This is how you should separate yourself from culture because these are the things that God has said over and over and over again in his word. And so Paul, he has this really impressive working knowledge of scripture, which is why Wednesday nights I think is so important. Because oftentimes on Sunday, you'll get scripture from like a 30,000 foot view and we'll just focus on a, a portion. Wednesday night is we, we go chapter by chapter through a book because we want us all to have a working knowledge of scripture. We wanna know God's word. What does it say? What is it talking about? What does it have for me? And that's so important. Because in Luke chapter four, you have this picture of Jesus. So Jesus has been born as a man. And now he has been baptized, identified for all of the spiritual world that this is God's son. In fact, the heavens open up and God says, yeah, that's my kid. So now Satan knows that's the guy. And so Luke chapter four, here's what happens. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So Jesus, as we brought into this chapter, he is hungry, he's weak, and he's tired. All right, so all of a sudden, this applies instantly to every single parent in the room. Right? I'm hungry, I'm weak, I'm tired, and I'm being tempted to do things I ought not to do every day. In verse three, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So Satan offers him convenience. Hey, this is a way to, to fix your current problem that you have. This would satisfy your appetite. Once you have your mind in a good, full state, then we can really talk. Then we can have a real conversation. And Jesus responds by quoting scripture. And then here's what happens next. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus, Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Hey, you're here to reclaim all the world to yourself, all the kingdoms, bring them all to yourself. And man, that's gonna be hard. That's gonna be difficult. You're gonna have to go through some things you really don't wanna go through. Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane is gonna pray, hey, if there's any other way that this can happen, let's do that instead. And Satan is saying, I'll give it to you right now. All you gotta do is compromise, just in a little thing, and I'll give you that thing that you want. And Jesus, his response to Satan is, he quotes scripture. Doesn't have an argument, doesn't get engaged, he quotes scripture. And then finally, and he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, until an opportune time. Satan misquotes, misuses scripture to try and trip Jesus up. 
Okay, you're gonna keep trying to go to scripture in order to defend yourself against me. I'll use scripture. And Jesus, he doesn't go, oh, well, that's not what that means. Oh, that, well, you're taking that out of context. Jesus, through his own working knowledge of scripture, digs down and says, no, but there's, there's verses that say this. And so I'm gonna stick to what I know God's word says, and I'm not gonna listen to that. For you and for me, the greatest weapon that you and I have against the enemy is a working knowledge of scripture. Because here it, it says the devil then waited for an opportune time over and over in God's word. It will talk about sin. It will talk about Satan as being someone who's crouched, waiting out the door to devour all whom he can. That we have an enemy who seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy, who's on mission, who does not sleep, who doesn't get distracted, and he's waiting for an opportunity when we are weak, tired, and hungry to go and, and get us, to cause us to fail, to cause us to compromise, to cause us to give in. The best weapon that you and I could have is a working knowledge of Scripture. And Paul demonstrates that here, right here. I think that you and I get a working knowledge of scripture by coming to Wednesday nights, bringing your Bible, reading through it together, talking through it. But I think another thing that can really, really be beneficial, be helpful in growing your own working knowledge of scripture is to study at home. And you go, well, man, how do I study at home? Because sometimes I just go into God's word and I see stuff and I just go, what does that mean? Like that's, I have no idea what to even do with that. So there's a pastor, his name's Dick Worthington, and he has this brilliant thing, which he, he will say he didn't come up with it, but I'm gonna say it, he came up with it. And it's called soaps. I don't know if you've heard of soaps, but what it's this, you have a journal, and you write on the top, S-O-A-P, and you get whatever scripture it was. So today we're in 2 Corinthians chapter seven. So you write 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verses one and two. And so that's your scripture, that's S. The O is original meaning. So what did this mean for them? Well, the, you know, the whole point of 2 Corinthians is we're talking to a church that's really gone through some messed up stuff and now they're, uh, they're doing better. You know, they need to be called out of their culture and separated from dark and light. And we get that from just the, reading the, the story, we get that. So that's O, that's what it meant to the original audience. But A is application. What does that mean for me? Well, we just talked about well, man, there's these verses here. Paul really knew scripture. I really need to know scripture like that. So the application for me is, I really need to be someone who's in my word more. I wanna have a working knowledge of scripture so that when I get tempted, when, when I get faced with tribulation or hardship, I got something in my mind where I go, no, God's word says something encouraging, helpful, hopeful for me in this. And then P is just prayer. You write down your prayer in light of those things. That's something we could do every single day. You could every day just have a soap. You choose a different scripture. You go through a book and just wherever God leads you, you do, okay, here's the scripture. Here's what I believe given the context of the chapter before, the chapter after, the meaning was. This is what I believe the application is for me today. And then here's my prayer. God, will you, in light of what I read, will you do something in me? So soaps, that's something that you and I can do that will build our own working knowledge of scripture. And so Paul, he lays out these promises at the end of chapter six. This is what God promises. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. And so chapter seven starts by saying, since we have these promises, 
Those are the promises. The promises is God is going to call himself our God. We get to call ourselves his people. I get to be God's sons and God's daughters. It's not that we're just God's people, not that just we're arbitrarily, we're some people who associate ourselves with God. We're not just his citizens and we're not just his guests. You know, you ever have guests who overstay their welcome? At my house, we call it Thanksgiving, you know, like sometimes you have guests, and they just broadly overstay their welcome. And you're like, man, I cannot wait till they go home. That's not the position you and I get in Christ. We become God's children. So is there anyone in a kingdom who would dare wake up a king at three o'clock in the morning and ask for a glass of water? Only a son, only a daughter, right? That's the only person who would dare go, hey, dad, I really need something, right? So for me in my house, there's, I would hope there would be no one else in this world who would come into my room when I'm just trying to sleep and wake me up and say, dad, I don't know how it happened, but there's pee like everywhere. Right? I've got a seven-year-old, a four-year-old, a two, almost three-year-old. Like, this is a conversation I have almost every night. And I'm pretty sure they conspire together to take shifts, you know? Like, hey, I really need a full night's sleep. I really need you to be the guy who pees the bed. Okay. And they, they trade, you know? Somehow that happens. You and I, what the Bible says here, the promise that you and I get is even when it's late, even when it's super inconvenient, even when it seems like everyone else has abandoned us, doesn't want to talk to us, whatever, you and I can go to God and have unparalleled access to the creator and sustainer of the universe in our time of need. You and I get to boldly approach the throne of grace in our time of need. You can say, God, in my marriage, God, at my workplace, God, in this situation with these neighbors, with these family members, with these friends, I've really peed the bed. That's a good one, right? <laughs> and guess what? God doesn't go, are you kidding me? Again? No, God gets up and he goes, okay, there's a big mess here. I'm gonna take care of the mess. We're gonna work through this together. It's gonna be okay. That's how God approaches you and me. We're his children. We're not guests. We're not just citizens. The promise that Paul is saying you and I need to have on the forefront of our mind is our position in Christ. We are his children. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So holiness for the Corinthians probably was mocked quite a bit in their culture that they had. Like it gets mocked quite a bit in the culture that we have. Like, so, okay, so you're a Christian, so like you don't do anything fun? You're not allowed to do any of the fun things? In fact, there's a TV show, which I used to think was so funny growing up, called My Name is Earl. And one of the earliest episodes of My Name is Earl, it might be the first episode, Earl goes to the basement of a church, and in that church, there's a poster, because Hollywood dolled it up, you know, like this is the caricature of how Americans think church is. This is what culture demonstrates church to be. And there's a poster, it's got a rainbow and trees, and it says, if it's fun, it's probably wrong. That's how culture views Christianity. Oh, are you having a good time? God's probably mad at you. Right? So for the Corinthians, everything that they would think was fun was core to their culture. It's like Las Vegas. Everything that you would think what people go to Las Vegas to do, the Corinthians, out of holiness, pursuing holiness, are not supposed to be engaging in those things. And so Paul says something really interesting. He says, beloved, 
Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body. Okay, so what's a defilement of body? These are passions of the flesh, these things you engage in. These are sexual things. These are drinking a lot. This is um, lying, stealing, cheating. And then there's also defilement of the spirit. That's all the internal stuff, your thought life, the stuff that isn't outwardly expressed. You need to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, I thought it was Jesus's blood that cleanses me from all unrighteousness. So then what is this saying? I need to cleanse myself from every defilement of body and spirit. I think there's a, it's a partnership that Jesus cleanses me and then I need to pursue holiness. That I'm saying Jesus is king. Well, if Jesus is king, he gets to decide what's right and wrong, even if I don't understand it, even if I don't get it. When you leave here and you get in your car, you're going to pull out of the driveway and get in the right-hand lane. Why are you getting into the right-hand lane? It's arbitrary. It's the right thing to do. I've been told to do it. This is what we do. Because someone in high authority said, this is the law and this is what we do. And even though I don't understand it, even if I don't get it, I'm going to stay in the right-hand lane. And if you see me driving in the left-hand lane as a brother and sister in Christ, you should tell me, hey, buddy, you should probably be in the right-hand lane. I don't think that's going to be right for you or for others if you drive in the left-hand lane. Wouldn't that be fair? That's the community that we're supposed to have. Jesus is king. Jesus gets to decide what is right and what is wrong. And some of the things that he says is right make a whole lot of sense to me. And some of the things that he says is right and wrong, I go, man, okay, I don't really get that. But if that's what God says, he's king and I'm not, and I'm gonna submit to it. And then this community of believers in pursuing holiness and pursuing a walk with Jesus is supposed to be able to say to one another, hey, you're driving in the left-hand lane. I think it's going to hurt you, your kids. You're going to have a head-on collision at some point, and it's not going to be good for you. We should do what King Jesus says to do. Verse 2, make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts, to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. So Paul is saying, hey, I'm super bold with you because I love you. I want to tell you exactly what you need to do because of how much I love you. I want to correct you. I want to make sure that you don't go off track. I don't want to make sure you don't get shipwrecked in your faith. I'm going to correct you even when it's really, really hard to do so. And so there were people in this community that would be saying in Corinth, man, Paul is just so overbearing and legalistic. Man, Paul is just so... uh, he kicked out that guy that we all liked and was super funny, who was having relations with his mother or mother-in-law. Man, that guy was a party animal. Paul said he couldn't come to church anymore. Paul is just a not fun guy. Or there was accusations that Paul was taking money from the Corinthians, that the Corinthians would tithe and Paul was taking money from it. And Paul lists right here, I have wronged no one. I have corrupted no one. I've taken advantage of no one. In fact, Paul is saying, I haven't done any of those things. All that I have done that you could say I'm guilty for is correcting you, even when it's been really, really hard to do so, even if it's been really uncomfortable to do so. I've corrected you and said, hey, you know what? We can do better than that. And so verse five. For even when we came into Macedonia, 
which is northern Greece. Our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Paul has been really anxiously struggling with the letters that he sent the Corinthians. He's so worried about it. He wants to make sure that they know his heart, how, how deeply he cares for them. He wants them to receive it well. You know, the Bible tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend. It's only your closest friends that are going to really tell you what you really need to hear. It's just like when parents correct their kids, sometimes the kids go, oh, you just, you don't care about me. You don't want me to have fun. You don't understand. It's faithful are the wounds of a friend. I want better for you. I want you to do well. I care about you so deeply. I'm going to make sure I correct you and set you on the right path. And so Paul has sent this letter. And it's a, it's a blue text message on his phone. And he can see the dots. And they come and they go away. And they come and they go away. And it's been weeks. And it's been months. And it's been a long time since he heard a reply. Because he sent Titus with the letter. He's waiting for Titus to come back. And he's, oh man, I hope that went well. I really hope that they received that correctly. I really hope that they understand my heart. I'm not, I'm not coming down on them because I'm a legalistic fuddy-duddy. I'm not coming down on them because I, I want more money from them or, or whatever the community of people who stand against Christ are trying to say about me. That isn't true. And I hope they got my heart from the letter that I sent. And so then verse six, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. God who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. If you are here tonight and you are downcast, you're anxious, you're depressed, you are worn out, you're hurting, you're lonely, you're experiencing loss. We have a God that can offer more than just kind words and platitudes and, and ideas. We have a God that the Bible says can give you past that peace that surpasses all understanding, that when your neighbors and friends and family look at you, they can go, how are you so, how are you handling this in the stride that you're handling it? How do you have peace right now when it seems like everything is chaotic and upside down and crazy? How can you possibly have peace right now? We have a God that can give us joy, even in the midst of affliction. Even when you're in the middle of the worst situation in your life, you can still come through it with joy. This is where you see Paul and Silas joyfully praising God in the middle of what would possibly be the most inhumane prison situations in history. You have hope that lives on despite your circumstances. How do you get that? Sometimes when we come to service, we hear something that's confirmation for our hearts. You know, like we, we know something, we know scripture, we know that, okay, God can come through for me and all that. Sometimes when you're sitting in service, something can be said that just confirms in your heart, oh my gosh, I really needed to hear that. But sometimes you can have a friend, God who comforts the downcast, can send the right person with the right message at the right time. And it's not even this scenario, it's someone literally sending you a text message or someone giving you a phone call or someone showing up, or someone even at work just saying like, man, you're doing a really good job. And all of a sudden you're just like, I am doing a good job. You know, like something just all of a sudden it hits your heart and you're like, I've been, yes, I have been doing a good job. Thank you so much. You have no idea how much I needed that. I think sometimes God sends those people to us right when we need them. But more than that, 
I think you and I are supposed to be those people. That sometimes we can get so caught up in our own worlds that we forget that we're supposed to be comforters to other. That Titus was a comforter for Paul. He came with a message saying, oh my gosh, you won't believe how great it was. They, 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 they received your message. God is doing such great things there. I think we need to be people who look at our brothers and sisters more often because man, every one of us has something going on. Every one of us has stuff going on in our life, situations that we're dealing with, circumstances that we wish weren't that way. And just to have someone else saying, man, hey, I, I see what's going on. I care for you. I love you. You're doing just a great job can seriously sometimes mean so much. And then that what that does, that opens up opportunity to have conversation that really needs to be had. And so verse eight, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Matthew 18, Jesus lays out this situation where you have a man who comes to church and while he's offering sacrifice to God, he realizes, I have a brother who sinned against me. Jesus says that man needs to leave, go find that brother and reconcile. Jesus says that as a command to the disciples sitting in front of him, as a command for you and me, because that is so awkward and that is so hard, right? But here's what happens. If you have somebody who has said something and it has hurt you, or you think they said something, you heard through the grapevine that someone has said something, or you've heard through the grapevine that something was said about you, and so you attribute it to someone else, and you don't know for sure, but you're pretty sure that person has said it or done that thing or acted in that way, and you don't go and talk to that person about it. That person is a believer in Jesus Christ, and you don't go and talk to that person about it. That is 100% a root of bitterness planted by the enemy to cause division and a wedge between you and that person. And if you don't go and correct it, if you don't go and have that hard, awkward conversation, that wedge will only continue to grow and to grow and to grow to where every thought you have about that person is tainted. It's bitter. It's frustrating. I can't get along with them. I don't like working with them. I don't want them to do well, even though they might have no idea. They might be completely innocent in the matter. They may have sinned against you and you're depriving them the opportunity to say, oh my gosh, I had, no, I had no idea that hurt you. Will you please forgive me? How can I make this right? How can we move forward? Or you're completely mistaken. They have not sinned against you. And now you've just been bitter about something that's been fabricated by the enemy. Man, what, in either case, it is a complete loss for the kingdom as a complete win for the enemy. And Paul is saying here, hey, there's godly grief that produces a repentance that leads to salvation. You and I are supposed to have those hard conversations that can say, man, you really hurt me. The, the thing you did, that thing you said really disappointed me and let me down and it's been super bothering me. The other person is supposed to experience that godly grief that leads to repentance. Oh my gosh, I had no idea. I am so sorry. That's something that we are supposed to, as believers, experience and walk through and go through. 
There's a godly grief that you and I are supposed to have and we're supposed to be able to experience as we reconcile with one another. Jesus makes it a command that you must go to your brother if he has sinned against you and talk to him. If you're at church and you remember, oh my gosh, this guy has done this thing to me, you're supposed to leave and go reconcile before you continue. That seems like it's a pretty big deal. It's a command from your king. And even though that's uncomfortable and even though you don't sometimes think it's right, Jesus says you have to do it. And as a community of believers, we're supposed to say, if someone is talking with you and saying, man, that guy, that guy just did this thing to me, you're supposed to tell them, you're driving on the left-hand side of the road. You're, you need to go talk to that believer. You need to stop gossiping about the situation. You stop ruminating on it and allowing that root of bitterness to get deeper and deeper and deeper. You must talk to that person. Tell them what happened. Give them the opportunity to experience that godly grief and repent. And so verse 11 for we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself. Oh my gosh, isn't that just the case? That when someone comes to you and you had no idea that you hurt them and you, you genuinely care about this person, you go, man, that really hurt me. Isn't there an eagerness to clear yourself? There's this earnestness to say, okay, hey, I'll make it right. How do I fix this? Who do I need to talk to? An earnestness, an eagerness to clear yourself. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment? At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore, we are comforted. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Paul says, man, you guys are missing the boat. The Corinthians now see what they were previously blind to and their response is, hey, I'll fix this. We're gonna make this right. We're gonna correct the direction that we were heading in. We're gonna make it better. And there were people who were saying that, man, you know what? You just can't trust Paul. We don't like this guy. We don't like the way he talks. We don't like the things that he's doing. And now the Corinthians response is, those guys are crazy. Those guys, we're not going to listen to those guys anymore. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still the more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affliction for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. Titus comes back and he is so excited to return and give Paul all the good news. Hey, this is how the Corinthians are becoming a light in their community. They're responding to the message that you have. They're rejecting those who are saying, man, don't listen to Paul. Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. God just wants you to have fun and love is love and enjoy whatever you're doing. And, and God just wants you, first and foremost, to be happy, not to be holy. And Titus has come back saying, oh my gosh, they've, they've repented from those things. 
They've turned from that. They're wanting to do things righteously. They want to do things in pursuing holiness. They want to live the way that they ought to live. This is amazing. And Paul is saying, what a great report to get back from him, especially because the initial report that we learned about in 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about the report that I've heard about you is pretty stinking bad. So this is such great news. Oh my goodness, finally a report that things are going well. How exciting is this? And so then it makes me wonder, what kind of report would you and I get back? What kind of report would Edgewater get? Titus leaving here and going to Paul and telling, us about us, telling him about us. Would we have, would he say, oh my gosh, they have got such a great working knowledge of scripture. Those people just love to be in your word. Those people, when the enemy comes, and he does every single day, he's crouching, looking for an opportunity. When the enemy comes, those people, they don't argue. They don't, get, they don't go, ah, you know, that does kind of make sense. They just, they know scripture. They know God's heart. They know God's direction and path for their life through scripture. No, they don't compromise on that kind of stuff. Do we hold on to the promises of God? Is that what Edgewater, the people who come here are marked by, that we know, oh, I'm God's kid, first and foremost. And more than anything else, I know I have access to the king, that when I get disappointed, frustrated, hurt, upset, I could blow my lid and get totally frustrated and red in the face, or I can go, I have the king of all creation. I can go into his room whenever I want, the throne of grace in my time of need, and say, Jesus, will you help me understand this situation? Jesus, will you, will you help me reconcile this? Jesus, I don't understand what's going on right now. Can you fix this? Can you help me? And is Edgewater a place where we make a practice of cleansing our, our sins of the flesh and our sins of the spirit that we can go to one another and say, man, you're driving on the left-hand side of the road. Are we a people who practice Matthew 18 where we say when a brother has sinned against us, we go to them and we say, man, we got to make this right. And then we have this earnestness to make ourselves innocent and say, hey, forgive me. How can I help? How can I reconcile? How can I fix this? And I really, really hope that we are. I would love for Edgewater to be that kind of church. And I think for the most part that we are, but if we embraced that, if we became a people where our goal is, I'm gonna have a working knowledge of scripture. I'm going to become obedient, even the hard things, like talking to someone when they've upset me, hurt me, frustrated me, becoming vulnerable to them in that way and giving them an opportunity to experience godly grief and repent. A kind of people where we know that God is the king over all of creation and that he's in charge of literally everything. And in my time of need and frustration, I can go to him instead of gossiping, instead of being frustrated and being angry by myself or spreading my anger to other people. No, I can go to talk to dad and I can talk to dad because stuff is messy and messed up right now and he knows how to fix it better than me. I think that's the kind of community that we all want to have. And I think that's the community Edgewater can definitely become as we continue to study God's word and continue to apply it to our lives. So Jesus, we're thankful to get to be called your kids, not because we have done something right or that we, did the, that we said the right things or memorized the right kind of stuff, but because of the work of Jesus alone, we get adopted into your family as sons and daughters, that it's your blood that has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. I, help that you, I pray that you will help us by giving us strength and courage to do what Paul says as we daily 
choose to cleanse ourselves of sins of the flesh and sins of the spirit. I pray that we would be mindful of the fact that sin is always present and always an opportunity, but it's never necessary. I pray, Lord, that as we leave here and as we love our kids, that we would love them the way that you love us, that we would show them what it means to be a child of God and that we live out a holy life in a way that they would choose to want it. Help us, Lord, to be the kind of people where we can call out our brothers and sisters when they're driving on the wrong side of the road and when someone comes to us and tells us, man, you really are blowing it, you really hurt me, help us to be people who in kindness listen with big ears and small mouths and help, help us to have open, soft hearts for if we need to experience godly grief and repent, that we would. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.